Something I'm really grateful for is that nobody in this room knew me in middle school. Can I get an amen? This might not have been true for you, but at least for me, middle school was absolutely the most awkward and difficult stage of my entire life. Uh, because you know what happens, I mean, really to all of us, you get into that age, your, your, your body changes, your voice changes. Suddenly we become aware of what other people are thinking about us. And at least for me, in that time there in the mid-90s, when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, the thought of being left out, of being unpopular, uncool, absolutely terrified me. And so I can remember dragging my poor mom to the Woodlands Mall to get me some Doc Martin shoes. That's 1995. Am I dating myself? And take me to Abercrombie and Fitch because I had to put on something that I thought would help me blend in. Now, my goal was not to be the most popular kid in school. I had no ambition for that. That wasn't going to happen. I just didn't want to stand out. I, didn't ju I just didn't want to be left out. I just wanted to blend in. That was, my, that was my entire goal. Now, I'd love to say that I left all that insecurity behind in middle school, but that wouldn't be true. I mean, I, I still don't like standing out. I still want people to think I'm something. I, I, want, I want to be in. Um, and to be in is, for me, again, is not to stand out, but it's to blend in. And I think a lot of us are built that way. We'd much rather blend in than stand out because it's a lot safer. It's a lot easier. There's less risk. There's potentially less conflict if you blend in with the crowd, right? But however that may impact what you wear and how you socialize, that cannot be applied to our faith. There is no blending in. To follow Jesus is to live a life of distinction. It's to be different. To have faith in Jesus, by definition, means you can't blend in with the crowd. To know and follow him is to be different. Not just from the world, we probably already know that. Different from the world, sure. But also for the world. To follow Jesus is to be distinct. It's to be different, not just from the rest of the culture, but for its sake, for the world's sake. That's what Jesus tells us here in Matthew chapter 5, that to follow him is to be different. We are Christians, but not for our own sake only, but also for the sake of others, for the sake of our communities and our world. We see that here in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus gives us some images that are very famous, very well known, and yet they ought to hit us where it hurts. They ought to strike us in the very deepest places of our heart. What Jesus says we are perhaps compared to what we actually are and how we actually function. And so we'll see the difference here as we walk through it. Look again with me at Matthew 5, beginning in verse 13. Jesus, remember, is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to his disciples, to those who are following him, and he makes a statement. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So Jesus, he, he first makes a statement, but then he couples it with a warning. When Jesus says to his followers, you are the salt of the earth, we may intuitively kind of have an idea of what that means. There are two primary functions of salt in the ancient world in the time of Jesus. One of them still very much applies, that salt back then, as it is today, it was used as a seasoning particularly on meat. You would season meat, and, and the purpose, of course, was to make it taste better. You bring out the best qualities of your food when you put a little salt or cook with a little salt, right? 
But also back then, and we're less familiar perhaps with this, salt was used as a preservative. See, these were, these were times before they had refrigeration. They had no freezers. They had no ice in the, uh, in the Middle East, right? And so they would pack meat, especially, they'd pack it in salt because salt, the chemical reaction, would slow down the process of decay. It would preserve their food. And so when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's making two very clear connections to the Christian life. He's saying, on one hand, that we season the world that we live in. We're meant to bring out the best of humanity. We're meant to lead and model what is good. And we're also meant to be a preservative in our culture and in our community, which means we're meant to be a, a, um, a substance, a kind of people that prevent decay. In this case, moral decay. Now, is Jesus being a little too ambitious right here? I mean, is he, is he asking too much of us when he says that we're the salt of the earth? I mean, really? Because it may be that we think, man, I, I can live my life the best I know how, but I can't make that kind of difference. I can't model the very best and help prevent the very worst. But I want you to think about this with me for a second. I don't have time to go into the details and sources. I'd love, if, you, if you're interested in this, come find me, send me an email. And I'll point you in this direction. I'm just going to give you in broad strokes two primary ways that Christianity has shaped the consciousness of the entire world, especially our culture. Things that we might take for granted and might not realize. Two things, okay? There are hundreds, by the way. Here's just two. Um, Throughout history, the dominant cultures of the world have viewed morality in a certain way. Morality, right and wrong. And the idea for most cultures has always been, you should do good, you should do what is right, because that is, what's most, that, that, that is what is most honorable for you. That You don't want to bring shame upon yourself, do you? And so you need to do what is right. But see, over time, that ethic has shifted, especially in the West, in Europe and America. That ethic is no longer, if you ask anybody, almost anybody, why should we do good and right things? They're not going to talk about their own reputation, their honor or their shame. What are they going to talk about? You do good for the sake of others, not for the sake of yourself. That you ought to do good and right because that's what most blesses and benefits other people. You don't steal. Why? Because, well, if you got caught, you get in trouble. Right, right, right. But most people don't look at it that way. You don't steal because you're stealing from someone, and it's their good that you're robbing, not just, not just your good that you're um, invalidating, right? And so wh- where did that shift come from? That shift from, an other, from, a, from a self-centered morality to an others-centered morality, all that came from Christianity, from Christians who viewed the whole world as our neighborhood. All people are our neighbors, and therefore we act in good ways for their sake, not for our own. That originated from within the church. See, now most people share that ethic. They just don't know where it came from. For us, it just seems natural. It just seems right. But it hasn't always been that way. That's been the church following Christ. Now, coupled with that, second example, this idea that all people are created equal and all people have equal dignity. Where did that come from? This idea that, that people should be free, no one should be oppressed, no one should have their human rights trampled on, everyone should have their human rights upheld. That's a very, very strong belief among most people who make up our culture. Where did that come from? That, see, that came from Christianity. That we don't have caste systems or class systems in Christianity. 
that we view all people according to what the scripture says, that all people were created in the image of God, and therefore they have equal dignity and worth, regardless of their station in life, what they do for a living, the color of their skin, or how much money they have. It doesn't matter. We're all equal. Those ideas have become so ingrained in our culture that we don't even know the difference. We just think that's right. But that came from the people of God acting out the truth of God's word. The history backs that up. I can, I can help you find it if you're interested, but just for the shortness of time, those are two really... The idea of the orphanage, that came from Christianity. Charity, the building of hospitals, that's the church leading the way throughout history. And my point is simply this, that Christians are the salt of the earth. What Jesus says is not an aspirational value, something we ought to be if we try really hard. He says, this is what it means to follow me. Christianity has had a far deeper impact on the fabric of our world than any of us can begin to calculate. We are the salt of the earth. So don't doubt that. Don't think that to be too ambitious. That's just the truth. And history backs it up. But see, Jesus attaches a warning to it. He doesn't just drop the statement and walk away. He says something, and really he spends more time on the warning than he does on the statement. Jesus says, but if the salt becomes tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out into the street and trampled under people's feet. What's Jesus saying right there? That if we lose our distinctiveness, you see that? If we neglect the difference that is within us because we follow Jesus, if we desire rather to blend in, and that's what makes salt lose its saltiness, In terms of the chemical compound, salt is always salt, but if it gets mixed in with dirt, if it gets mixed in with moisture, all of a sudden it's not what it used to be. It's it's worthless. If we seek to blend in to uh, to our culture, blend in for the sake of popularity, then what we become, Jesus says, is Christian in name, but we lose our saltiness. We lose our distinction. And therefore it's a label, potentially for me, it's a label, Christian, that carries no power at all. I've lost what it is that makes me distinct. And see, this is one of the most serious warnings in all of Scripture, that our faith, the Christian faith, demands a purifying effect on the world. We're not just here passing through. We're not just here getting what we can get and trying to blend in. That we make a sincere difference for Jesus' sake. That's what it is to be salty. And we don't want to jeopardize that by seeking another path. Now, Jesus gives us a second image that really helps to explain the first. You notice what he says in verse 14. He moves on, but he's really explaining what we just read. Verse 14, he says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, under a bowl. No, but you put it on the lampstand that it may give light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. Uh, so Jesus has said, you're the salt of the world. Now he compares us to the light, the light in a darkened place. Now we know how light works. We know what light does. Light illuminates, light leads, light warms, light reveals. Light, and often in the scripture, is used as a metaphor for truth. That's light. And it's hard for us to imagine, though, that the... Uh, uh, can you imagine a world without electricity? I can't. I've always known it that way. And yet in the time of Jesus, when Jesus says, you are a city set on a hill, 
very, in a very real way, a city on a hill, the only light at night that a city would have potentially would be the fires and the lamps burning in that city. But you have to imagine around that city a vast amount of darkness. And in every direction, for miles around, pure darkness if the moon was shrouded by clouds. And it's the light of a city that would be for you a safe haven, a comfort, a strengthening effect on you in the midst of a very dark place. Jesus says that's what you are. Not you singular, because there's no such one, there's not a one person city in existence. We, the church, he means, we are a city set on a hill. We are a light that is elevated so that it might give light to all who are around it. Uh, Jesus speaks of himself in the book of John. He says, I am the light of the world. And there's no contradiction here. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, in Matthew 5, he says, you are the light of the world, that the connection is meant to be very clear. That because we follow Christ, we now share and emanate his light. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness, but will have the very light of life. See, when we come to Jesus Christ, we receive something from him that is not meant to remain private. It's not meant to remain uh, singular to me. It's meant to emanate. That's why Jesus says, nobody would light a lamp and put it under a bowl. That would defeat the whole purpose. You elevate it. You set it up so that it might give light to everyone around it, okay? Now, how do we do that? You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. What does that actually mean? What do I actually do? Well, I love verse 16. Jesus makes it really clear for us. A scripture I memorized a long time ago. I'd encourage you to memorize it um, because it's so clear. Jesus says, let your light shine before others, before people so that they may see your good works and then glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so if you want to boil it all down, what Jesus means when he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, he's saying that we are meant to actively live out the good works of God so that others might see us and glorify not us, but our heavenly Father who is the source. I'm telling you the truth, and you know this to be true. If you really live differently in terms of how Christ called us to live, you're going to stand out, and people aren't going to know what to do with you. This is the truth. It's always been this way. People won't know what to do with you, and they're going to wonder at the source. What is it that makes you this way? And more than likely, if that person knows you, they're going to know the source isn't you. How could it be? They're going to see the source as something outside of us. That's what Jesus says. They're going to turn and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And just in case anybody might think that you're something good on your own, that's an opportunity for us to evangelize, to say, no, I am who I am by grace. If there's anything good in me that you esteem, it's only because my heavenly Father's done it, that they might turn and glorify him, not us. Now, I said this last week, um, The Sermon on the Mount, when we read this text, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it functions kind of like a mirror. That when we hold these words up to our face, up to our true self, it's very revealing. And the truth is, for you and for me, I know this to be true, that we don't always like what we see in that mirror. Because what Jesus is doing for us right here, he's giving us the standard and the purity of God's righteousness. This is what it looks like for a person to have a heart shaped by God himself. And therefore, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, it brings up uh, my insecurities, my failures, my impurities, all the things that I I fall short in. I see it, and I see that I don't measure up. 
And so when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, that should be a convicting statement for us. Because if you know your own heart like I know mine, we, we, we don't measure up. And so when Jesus calls us to a certain way of life, here, here's what we have to wrestle with. And, it, and, and if, if that idea of holding up the scripture to yourself, if that doesn't make sense, think about it this way. Ask yourself this question. How truly different am I from the dominant culture in which I live? I think that's what Jesus is getting at. How truly different are we from the dominant culture in which we live? Is our generosity different? Do we raise our children differently? Is our work ethic any different? Are our sexual ethics any different? The things that we laugh at, are are our dreams and our ambitions for our lives, are they any different than everybody else? Those are hard questions to ask ourselves because they, they hit us in places that we don't like to confront. I don't like to confront. And remember, of course, we're not talking about difference for its own sake. We're not talking about being weird just to be different. We're talking about the difference that comes from following Jesus. If you follow him, you will be distinct. There's no way around it. And so those questions for us should be revealing, like looking into a mirror. Now, Jesus has told us what he means, good works, right? Living out actively the good works of God. Living out not just the purity that we experience from sin, right? but also living out acts of justice and mercy and kindness and love, forgiveness, that we let our light shine, right? Okay, so how do we actually do that? Because I don't know about you, but I I need to be told what to do. I'm the kind of guy that if if I follow my own intuition, if I follow my own heart, I always end up somewhere skewed. So what do we actually do if we want to live this way? Jesus tells us, look at verse 17. This seems to be unrelated. It looks like Jesus kind of takes a hard right turn in verse 17, but he doesn't. This is, this is related here. Jesus is going to tell us what it means now, practically, to walk this kind of life out. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish. I came to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus, in Jesus' ministry, there was an accusation flying around constantly that Jesus had come to abolish the Old Testament. That's what he means when he says the law and the prophets. That Jesus wasn't concerned with the Old Testament. He was coming to establish a new cult religion, and he was trying to get people to walk away from what had been written, from what they had built their life and their religion on as the people of Israel. But Jesus makes it really clear right here. He says, I did not come to do away with the Old Testament, with the Law and the Prophets, which is a way of saying, I didn't come to get rid of it. I actually came to fulfill it. And this is such an important verse. When Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish it, I came to fulfill it. In fact, Jesus says, for the rest of time, until heaven and earth pass away, for the rest of time, not even the smallest detail of the Old Testament is going to become invalidated or lose its strength and power. The dots on the I's, the crosses on the T's, Jesus said, it will always remain. It will always be the word of God. And so Jesus affirms everything that was written in the past. It doesn't need to be removed. It doesn't need to be improved upon. But it does need to be fulfilled. It does need to be completed. And see, that's what Jesus said about himself. That everything that had been written, everything that the Jewish people, the people of God had built their lives on, Genesis through Malachi, your Old Testament and mine, Jesus says it needs to be fulfilled and I'm the one to do it. 
the Old Testament was really written about me. That's what Jesus said, which is a massive claim, by the way. They picked up stones to stone him every time he made himself out to be that high and mighty and equated himself with God. That whole thing's written about me, Jesus said. But I want to show you what he meant here. When Jesus died and then rose from the grave, he had, he had been resurrected. This is from Luke chapter 24. You don't need to turn there. But in Luke 24, two of his disciples, after the resurrection, they didn't realize it had happened. They're walking along the road, dejected, because they've watched their Savior die on a cross. He's been buried in a tomb. He has failed. And now they've got to pick up the pieces and go start over, right? They're sad. And Jesus, in his resurrection state, comes up alongside them. They don't recognize him. And he says to them, You foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, the law and the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He says, it's all about me. In John chapter 5, Jesus spoke to the religious leaders. They were religious, but they didn't believe in him. And he said to them, you search the scriptures, talking about the Old Testament, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these that testify about me, Jesus said, and you are unwilling to come to me in order that you may have life. It's all about me. Jesus is saying the Old Testament points to his saving work, the saving work of the Son of God. So, of course, he's not going to put it away. He's not going to abolish it. He's going to bring it to fruition. He's going to make it complete. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he spoke of the Old Testament, he said, the law of God is our tutor. Like a tutor to a student, it brings us to Christ. It doesn't, it's not meant to exist on its own anymore. It brings us to a Savior. Now, what does that have to do with being salt and light? Okay, stick with me now. Here's what it has to do with salt and light, with our part now to play. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, whoever then, because I have fulfilled the law, Jesus says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, talking about his own commandments, and teaches others to do the same, that person shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches these commandments, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is speaking about his fulfillment of the law, that if you deny now what I say, Jesus, what Jesus says, if you deny it, if you pick and choose in order to kind of construct your own version of Jesus for your own sake, Jesus says you lose everything. You miss it entirely. In fact, if, if, if you and I would try to do this, to take what Jesus has said and done and just to pick the things we like and forsake the things we don't, we think we're getting a new, improved, and better version of Jesus for ourselves. Jesus is saying, you get nothing. You miss me altogether. You take it all, or you miss it all. And see, because Jesus came to fulfill the law, we are saved not by our keeping of the law. I want you to hear me on that. We're saved not by our keeping of the law. We're saved by his keeping of the law, his fulfilling of the law. He did it for us that he might give us his righteousness, okay? Now, if that's true, what Jesus says about us now, the only reasonable response, if you have received his grace, the only reasonable response is to obey him. And this is where salt and light really hit the ground for us. This is where the rubber meets the road. The only way now to know Jesus and follow him is to obey his words. If you keep my word, he says, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
great. Simply by keeping and teaching what he says. We only live and speak and act differently as Christians according to what Jesus has told us in his word, according to what the word says. And here's my point. Left to myself, I will make it up as I go. And sadly, too often I do. I'll I'll look around me at people that I admire or aspire to be, people that do good things, and I'll say, I want to be like that. And I'll do my best to try to become something that maybe I esteem or desire to be, or that I think that maybe that you would be impressed with. And all along, I'm neglecting the very basis of salt and light for me, which is the Word of God. We don't have to make it up as we go. We don't have to follow what popular culture says or what our culture's understanding of morality or goodness is, because what Jesus gives us exceeds it. He's told us who we are and what to do. And so we're not expected to make it up as we go. If you want to be salt on the earth, if you want to be a light to the world, Jesus says you keep and you teach my word, my commandments. Jesus is our Savior, and he also, by his words, he gives us the blueprint. It's not complicated. I make it complicated, but Jesus didn't. He said, keep and teach my word, and you'll be great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, he drops the mic on us in verse 20. This is our last verse we'll look at. I know we're all hot. Am I sweating through my shirt? I know we're hot. Verse 20, Jesus kind of drops the microphone on us here. And uh, and I want you to feel what he says, okay? He says, I say to you, which is an old Hebrew way of saying, listen up, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that verse may not hit you the same way it would have hit the original hearers, those who were listening to Jesus that day, but it's a massive statement because the scribes and the Pharisees were the most religious people in the world. They were the most do-gooder, law-abiding kind of people around. Nobody would outpace the Pharisees. They were the very best of the best, the upper crust of religious devotion and obedience. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, your righteousness must exceed theirs. It must surpass theirs. Now, how in the world can that be the case? Maybe if if it would land a little bit better for us, if Jesus were to look at you and say, uh, you know, your righteousness has to exceed Billy Graham's righteousness or else you don't get in at all. That might hit us a little harder. Might give us a taste of what the the disciples would have heard when they heard this. But the explanation of this verse really encapsulates the whole whole sermon today from verses 13 to 20, okay? So we're going to close on the explanation here that when Jesus talks about a righteousness that surpasses the most righteous people in our culture, he's talking about, in a sense, uh, one coin with two sides, okay? He's talking about a kind of righteousness and a degree of righteousness, okay? There's a kind and there's a degree. What kind of righteousness does a Christian have? We are righteous because Jesus makes us righteous. I hope we're really clear on that. That's the whole basis of us having a church to meet in. We are righteous because Jesus makes us righteous, not we ourselves. The Apostle Paul said it like this in Philippians 3. He said, I do not have a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of of faith. Paul said, I I don't derive my own righteousness from my ability to do good things. I receive my righteousness as a gift 
from God, okay? That's the kind of righteousness a Christian has. How does that surpass the Pharisees? Well, they were, like Paul, they were trying to derive their righteousness from the law. They were trying to do enough good to become righteous, and that's not true righteousness. Jesus came to give us his righteousness, not to tell us how to better earn it. So in that sense, we surpass. That's not to our credit, that's to his. And then there's a surpassing righteousness in degree, not just in kind, but in degree. You've got to be in your practical life more righteous than the Pharisees and the scribes. Now that seems maybe a little stickier, a little more difficult. Those guys had the entire Old Testament memorized. How, do you be, how can you do more than that? But remember what Jesus is saying, their righteousness, because it was external to them, because it was what we call self-righteousness, it didn't actually accomplish anything. It was simply what they did in hopes that they could earn something from God or impress those around them. Jesus talks a lot more about that in chapter 6. It was an external righteousness, not one of the heart. If you were here last week, we looked at the Beatitudes. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is a righteousness which is not external to us. It begins in the heart. It is something that for us, we don't put on religious clothing and try to put on a facade in the hopes that God would be impressed or that other people would be impressed. No, we seek to love and obey and honor God simply out of a heart that loves him. And that's only possible if our heart's been changed by his grace. It's not an external righteousness, it's an internal one. So when Jesus says, you've got to surpass them, he's not saying if there's a Pharisee next door who does 99 good things tomorrow, you better do 100, or you're not getting into heaven at all. Surely not. He's saying there is a righteousness of the heart that actually matters to God, and therefore it will surpass the righteousness that's merely external. Right? A lot of us, we try to live our lives externally, doing enough, earning enough, and we've missed it altogether. Jesus says you won't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you have a true righteousness that only comes from me. So here's, here's, here's how we close, y'all. If you and I, if we say, man, I want to be the salt of the earth. I want to be the light of the world. I mean, I, I, I see where I'm, I, I come short, but man, I, I, I'm, I'm, I want to, to be this way. Well, here's good news. Jesus didn't say you ought to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. He said you are. You are. This is who we are because of him. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And if that's true, this is not something we aspire to be. This is something that we ought to simply live out. Out of a love and a devotion for Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, we now become a certain kind of people, a certain community that changes things because we have hitched our wagon to Christ. This is not something we produce in our own effort, in our own will. You will never grit your teeth and become this way. You become this way by receiving Christ and now by following him in loving obedience. I need to pray for the grace to become this way. I want to give up trying harder, merely. And I want to become the kind of person that this, this is true from the inside out. So would you pray with me in this? Father, we ask this morning for a grace that we cannot manufacture. We cannot do this. And I pray, Lord, that your words would sting us. That when we look at what Jesus says about us and what he says to us, Lord, that we would know we fall short and we do not measure up and we, there, we just can't do it. 
And therefore, Lord, we have to fall upon grace and, and, and allow your grace to make us who we are. And so, Father, let us do that now, Lord. If, if what we read this morning condemns us, if it crushes us, then, Lord, would you encourage us today that you, that you didn't come to crush us. You didn't come to condemn us. Lord, you came that you might save us. And, Lord, you make us into something new that we might now live a life that changes things. We might live a life now that's not just personally encouraging and joyful, but a life that salts and that illuminates the world around us. So, Father, Lord, let us, let us start in the right place today. Let us start in the gospel of your good grace. But, Lord, let us be propelled by that grace into a life that is meaningful for your sake so that others might see us in the distinctiveness of our lives, that they might see us and turn and glorify you. We need this, Lord, and our world desperately needs it too. So we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.